The Sermon on the Mount is a great passage of Scripture, one of the largest passages of Scripture on a single subject in all the Bible. It's three full chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, and it is a sermon that the Lord Jesus preached. It is a passage that is well-known, loved by many Christians all over the world, but it is also a passage that can be misunderstood. And one of the ways that people misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount is that they believe it's written to everyone, to the world, that it was preached to the world as teaching a way of salvation. And sometimes a person will say, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm following the commands and instructions of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is not a way of salvation, but it is a sermon that was delivered to believers, delivered to Jesus' disciples. If you look at verse 1, middle of the verse, after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And so this is a passage, this is a sermon preached by the Lord Jesus to his disciples, to the first believers. And it is a sermon addressed to all believers in all times and all places. It's a sermon that is addressed to you and me here today. And it is a sermon that answers the great questions of the Christian life. In this first section, beginning at verse 3, it answers the question, what is a Christian? How do we become a believer, a disciple? And it says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the way that we're saved is not by bringing something to pay for or earn our salvation, but we come to the cross as someone who is completely bankrupt spiritually. As the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And a disciple, a believer, is someone who is not saved by living a good life, saved by following rules. He's somebody who is saved by grace through faith, receiving salvation as God's free gift. What is a disciple? And then the next question that believers ask is, how will this change me? What's going to happen now that I've become a believer? And of course, we are born again. The Bible says we walk in newness of life. And beginning at verse 4, we find out something about the character of a Christian. And we won't go into all the details there, but there's many aspects of Christian character all laid out for us in this sermon. And then we also come to the question, what about our conflict in the Christian life? A person doesn't have to be a believer very long in some places to come into conflict with the world. We call it persecution. That's what Jesus calls it. And there are believers around the world who are being persecuted simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. And the sermon answers the question, what do we do should persecution come to us? And we find this starting at verse 10, 11, and 12, when we looked at that last time. And then also it answers a question that believers are asking today, and that is, how do I live in today's world as a Christian? How am I to live as a follower of Jesus Christ today? And the answer here in verses 13 through 16 is really this. We're to live a life that matters, a live a life that counts for good. Someone has pointed out that everyone who comes into this world either makes the world a better place 
or a worse place. Think of some of the people in history who've made the world a better place and some who've made it a worse place. And there's lots of them on both sides. For us as Christians, our goal should be to make the world a better place just because of the fact that we are in the world. And that's what the Lord Jesus is going to talk about today. So how do we live a life that would really be, would have a positive effect? How do we have that positive difference in our world? Well, this morning in our text, there are several principles that will show us how to live a life that makes a positive difference in a negative world. And number one is this, in order to know how to live in the world, we need to know where we are. Someone was asking me, are you thinking about retirement? I says, well, I still know who I am, and I can complete a sentence, so maybe, maybe, not, maybe not yet, you know. But there is a point in life where we might not know where we are. But it's important for us, if we're going to answer the question, how do I live in this world, where are we? What is our world? And here's principle number one, we live in a fallen world, a fallen world. Now, scholars, philosophers, commentators, media people, everybody agrees there's something wrong with our world. And you can read books and articles, listen to speeches, and people have done a great job in outlining the problems of our world today. The one thing everyone else has agreed on is not just that there's something very wrong, but nobody has the answer. Nobody has the solution for the problems of our world, except for the church. The church and the scriptures have the only answer to our world's problems. The source of our problems is not economics. It's not social problems. It's not any of these things. The source of our problems is sin, because we live in a fallen world that has been impacted by sin. Now, here in Matthew 5, verse 13, is the first place in the Gospel of Matthew where the Lord Jesus says something about who we are as disciples, as followers of him. And what he says is this in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And in these two statements, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, the Lord Jesus tells us who we are, and he also tells us what our world is, that we live in a fallen, fallen world. Now, salt is a preservative, and salt is used to keep what is fresh from decomposing. Our world is dead in sin, it's lost, it's decaying, deteriorating, disintegrating, and we are the salt of this world. It is a fallen world that is falling apart because of sin. In Romans chapter 1, we have a description of our fallen world. I'm going to read this section here. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. From the beginning, man had accurate and adequate information about God, but fallen man chose to turn away from God. Again, continuing in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man 
and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for what is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they gave, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And we're seeing that in our world today. A depraved mind, as you have it here, doesn't work right doesn't understand the truth and, and says things that just don't make sense. And that's the world that we're living in today. And again, it's because of sin. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And the fallen person today knows what he's doing is wrong, but is willing to do it and encourage others in the same direction. Well, these are shocking words, but they describe the situation in our world today that we live in a fallen world, that it is impacted by sin. And so in order to live as a disciple of Christ in this world, we need to understand that it's a world that's affected adversely by sin. And so history teaches us this as well. Think of the Babylonian Empire. It was very well run, huge, gigantic empire spread throughout the Middle Eastern world and beyond, highly organized, efficiently run. But yet in time, it deteriorated. By the days of Daniel, it had reached a low point and God announced that their days were numbered. And in fact, the Babylonian Empire came to an end in one night as it was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. The Roman Empire was at its peak when the Lord Jesus was born. Roman Empire was synonymous for what was called the known world. Nobody knew what was beyond the Roman Empire and nobody cared. That was the world as far as people were concerned. Again, organized, efficient, well-run, but within a few centuries, it gradually fell apart and just kind of went out of business. And so what we find is our world is not progressively getting better, but it's actually declining. And it is really doing what happens when you put a, you know, a piece of fresh food or meat and just leave it on the counter and forget about it. Bad things happen and it becomes inedible. Eventually it spoils, right? That's what happens. And our world is like that. It is something that is, needs a preservative to help it. And so we live in a fallen world, a world that's not getting better and better, but it's in the process of decomposing, deteriorating. It's, it's falling apart and it's because of sin. Now we have a unique identity. The Lord Jesus has placed us here in this world for a very special purpose. We are salt and light. Again, verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, these words tell us that this identity is unique only to us as believers. It is the church and us as believers in the church who are the only salt of the earth, the only salt in the world that will do what we are called to do. The Lord Jesus doesn't say you have salt and you can give it out. 
And he doesn't say you have salt and you can proclaim that you have salt. He says you are salt. And it's we who are Christians and we are the only preservative that this decaying world needs. We are the salt that salts the earth. We are the salt that is here to preserve this decaying world. And we're the only ones who are this salt. There's no other source of anything that can stop the deterioration in our world that's due to the destructive progress of sin. Only the church can do anything about this situation. And also it says you are the light of the world. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus tells us about us that we are light, but he also tells us about our world, that our world is a completely dark place. Ever been in a real blackout? I mean, the lights are out everywhere. I mean, just it's dark. Well, it's, what do you do? You've got to find a light. And what happens? Find that flashlight, dead batteries, you know, and don't have, and we have to have light. Well, we are the only light in a completely dark world. Only the church, only us as believers in it, we're the only light for this world. There's no other source anywhere that can do what the church is called to do. And so, again, our world is a dark place. It's a place of spiritual blindness. You know, when you're in the dark, you can't see where you're going. Don't know what's next. And our world is spiritually blind. It's also the devil's domain. The Bible calls it the domain of darkness. This is the devil's kingdom, and he has a fair amount of freedom to do what he wants right now. And so it is a place that is spiritually dark, Satan's domain. And again, the only light source is the church. Now, salt and light are effective wherever they are used. Light only does one thing. It illuminates, and it always does that. If there's batteries in the flashlight, if there's power in the lamp, the light will come on, and it does what light does. It illuminates. Salt does the same thing. If you put salt on an icy sidewalk, it will melt the ice 100% of the time. Where I live back in New England, it will also eat your car. We had cars we called rust buckets, and I had one of them, my faithful Volkswagen, many, many miles, and I got out from a trip, and I looked, and I could see a line of light around the driver's seat on three sides. And I thought, hmm. I wiggled the seat, and I realized it was only attached at the back. And I thought, I think I've reached the end of the road with my faithful bug. And so I called my buddy, Hova the Finn, guy from Finland, a great Volkswagen mechanic. I said, Hova, you want my Volkswagen? Goes, sure. I go, how much you give me? I'll give you a hundred bucks and I'll pick it up. So along comes Hova the Finn. Bye-bye goes my Volkswagen. It was a victim of rust. Salt works wherever it is applied, usually for good, sometimes for bad things. It ate my car. And so salt always works. And light, of course, penetrates every corner, illuminates everything. So our world is a place that is dead in sin. It is a place of spiritual darkness, and only salt and light can help our world. That's our identity. And number three, we have a God-given purpose. Now again, the Sermon on the Mount in this portion asks us, why are we here? What is our purpose? How do we live as a Christian in today's world? And we have a purpose that God has given to us. He's placed us here as salt and as light. He's placed us here to make a positive difference in this negative world. So we're here as salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth, the only salt that can salt this decaying world. We're it. Now, salt in the Bible has many uses. You find it in the Bible used in connection with sacrifices. 
You find it in covenants. There's something called the covenant of salt. Also, of course, there's flavoring. And Job actually mentions salt. He said this, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Is there any taste in the white of an egg? Ever been on a restricted diet where all you can eat is egg whites and maybe no salt? Well, Joe even talked about that. Salt is a flavoring. Makes everything taste better if you're allowed to eat salt. It's something you can do. Also used for medication. Newborn babies were treated with rubbed-on salt. I don't know why they did it, but it was done. Salt was also a weapon. If you conquered another land, one of the things that you would do to really set them back and harm their agriculture is to sow the land with salt. Salt sterilized the soil. They couldn't grow anything on land that was covered with salt. And so it was a weapon. And salt is also a preservative. Again, we're the salt of the earth. Now, salt serves a double function as a preservative. First, salt stops what is bad from spreading, stops the bacteria, the decay, all of that. Salt stops that from spreading. And then salt also protects what is good. It keeps that fresh meat from going bad because there's salt. It's been salted. And today we enjoy the mechanical marvel of refrigeration. It's easy to keep foods fresh now. Just put them in the refrigerator. My great-grandfather was an ice man in New York City. And he would carry those blocks of ice up the stairs in those apartment buildings in New York. And people would put ice in the ice box. Anybody ever have an ice box? Yeah. And I uh, put have that ice box, open the door, and put something in there to keep it cool. And the next day or two days later, the ice man would come back. And again, new ice to keep things refrigerated. But before there was refrigeration, before there was the ice man, there was salt. And salt was the preservative, very, very important in the ancient world. And meat could be rubbed with salt or soaked in brine to preserve it for long periods of time. There was, uh, I had some friends who salted different meats in a barrel full of brine. You could make uh, corned beef. And that would come out, and that's, well, St. Patrick's Day is coming. Doesn't everybody have corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day? And that is a salted meat that's designed to be preserved. And so salted meats can be kept without refrigeration. As I mentioned, we're gradually learning the history of the Old West by watching old cowboy shows. And one of the things a cowboy does when he goes on a long trip is he has to take food with him. And what does he take? Well, he has to take food that doesn't need refrigeration, so he takes Bacon and beans, jerky and beans, and that's pretty much it. There's only two or three recipes. There's bacon and beans and beans and bacon, and they kind of rotate those day by day, and that's it. But the main thing is they're indestructible. Those are foods that will keep for a long period of time because of salt. Well, salt is something that works by infiltration. You don't hear salt working. You don't really see it working but it works quietly, invisibly, and it keeps meat from going bad, from decomposing, deteriorating, going bad so you can't eat it. Salt works that way. And we are the salt of the earth. Again, salt infiltrates. And that's how believers work in our world. We work quietly, not really very visible, but also very effectively versus loudly and forcefully. And what we do as salt is we slow the destructive progress of sin in our world. How do we do that? Well, Christian character serves as salt in our fallen world, slows the progress of sin in our world. So, for example, looking at these character qualities back in the Beatitudes, starting at verse uh, 5, blessed are the meek or the gentle. 
This is the person who has the servant's heart, the person who defuses conflicts by saying, let's have it your way. And that can act as salt in our deteriorating, disintegrating world, the person who's a person of meekness. And then righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the person who wants to do what is right in every situation. And when we do that, we make the world a better place. When people are committed to doing what's right, the world becomes a better place. And then also, and how do we do that? Well, for example, when we do what's right in our homes, our church, our community, in our workplace, wherever we are, we are a quiet, effective force for good in this fallen world. When we do business with integrity, when we keep our promises, when our word is our bond, when we can literally do business on a handshake, we make the world a better place, again, because we want to do what is right in our business life. When we go to work and give an honest day's work for a day's pay, we're like salt. We slow the progress, the destructive force of sin in our world, doing its damage in the workplace. And this can happen so many ways. When we volunteer in our community, we can be a force for good in our world in many, many different ways. When we raise godly children, our influence is multiplied. And again, all to do what's possible to make our world a better place and slow the progress of sin. It's been pointed out that, of course, France had their revolution. It was a devastating, terrible war that took place inside of France. And England had the potential for the same thing. But they never had their English Revolution or their English Civil War, if you will. Why was that? Well, again, the reason is, and historians are generally agreed, that England did not have a revolution because the country was full of Christians who were living as salt and light, working as peacemakers to prevent the country from falling apart in a revolution and a civil war. This is something for us to think about today. What's the best thing we can do for our country? Live as salt and light. Live as Christians where we are. And a person of salt and light is someone who has an influence on their surroundings, sometimes without knowing it. When I was working in the wood shop, it was break time, and normally I would, uh, I had this sort of lounge chair I set up on my bench. I had a board on an angle and I'd stretch out on this and had a backrest, take out my thermos, have a cup of tea and enjoy 10 minutes of rest and relaxation. Well, my bench was all filled up with stuff from a job, so I went over to the radial saw and sat down over there, far away from the blade, and um, having my cup of tea and having my break. And I ended up sitting between two guys, Big Bad John and Tom the Perverted Painter, both really talented tradesmen, but both guys who knew how to use four-letter words. In fact, these guys could cuss the paint off a car. And somehow they got into some kind of disagreement. I'm in the middle, and so all this is going back and forth. I'm drinking my tea. I'm like, ah, 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 ah. and the foreman comes over. Bob comes over. He says, hey, John. He goes, yeah? You know that Pete is a deacon in his church? Yeah? And all of a sudden, the four-letter word stopped. I hadn't planned on this. And I thought, what? But this is what salt can do. I wasn't going there saying, I'm going to be salt and light, and I'm going to transform these guys. But that's what happened. And that's what can happen in our world as we live like salt and light. And many people have done this, where you can change the atmosphere just by being there as a Christian. It can happen. It was President Woodrow Wilson who told a story about a haircut that he got. Now, who would care about a president getting a haircut? Well, this was a very unusual experience. He's in the barbershop. And while he's there, he says, I became aware 
that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in, for the same reason as myself, to have his hair cut, and he sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man said, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D. L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts, and I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. And that was the effect of D.L. Moody on a barber shop, just going in to get a haircut, talking to the barber. And that's the kind of effect that a Christian can have as salt and light. He improves the atmosphere, improves the situation just by being there. And that is part of the reason why we're here as Christians, to be salt and light. And again, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, the one and only light in this world where people are spiritually blind. It's the domain of the devil. We are the light that this world needs. And in verse 14, he says, a, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, if you travel and you go past a big city, I remember driving through Nevada one night long time ago, and I didn't go through Las Vegas. I was probably 50 miles away, but you could see the glow of it in the sky. And I said, I think I know what's out there. And that was Las Vegas and just this glow. It was, it, you couldn't hide the place. It was just this gigantic place full of lights. There it was. And you couldn't miss it. And a city, whether it's on a hill or wherever it is, you can't hide a city. The lights are on all night long and people can see it. And the church is like a city with its lights on at night. And it's something that really can't be hidden. And so the church, again, stands out as light in a dark world. And Jesus says, verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And we're not to hide ourselves from the world. There have been Christians throughout history who have said the best way to live the best Christian life is to withdraw from the world. And there are stories of hermits and people living in monasteries really cut off from the world. But we're to be out there where the world can see us as light, as the light of the world. Again, to shine with good works. John Wesley said this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Get the idea? He's trying to make the point. Do good. Our good works shine as light in a dark world. And the gospel has given us really all that's best about Western civilization. The church has been a great blessing to our world. It is the church that led the way in establishing rights for women. In the ancient world, women had no rights. They were almost a piece of property. That has changed. And the church led the way in women's rights. Also, it is the church, and more and more only the church, that encourages and strengthens the family as God has designed it, the basic building block of society. It's the church that proclaims God's design for the family. And again, the family, the stable families, have been the building blocks of great nations throughout history, and the church is responsible for that.
It's the church that has given us science. I have a book with some of the biographies of the great scientists who were Christians. And again, some of the major branches of science were discovered and developed by scientists who were Christians. I would say Christian scientists, but not that kind. And so again, believers who were scientists discovered many great things that benefit us today. And so it's Christians as salt and light who work to give us hospitals and schools. Where would we be without hospitals and schools? Again, it was the church that started it. The church did that, and we have us to thank. One man summed it up very well. He said this, I would challenge any skeptic to find a 10-square-mile spot on this planet where they can live their lives in peace and safety and decency, where womanhood is honored, where infancy and old age are revered, where they can educate their children, where the gospel of Christ has not gone first to prepare the way. So you see what he's saying. He says, see if you can find 10 square miles anywhere on earth where you can live a comfortable life and the gospel hasn't been there first. He's saying the church has light has done these things. And so again, he understands that the good things in, West, in the Western world are due to the church as salt and light. So why are we here? How do we live in this world? We're to live as salt and light. As we live together in the will of God, we can do a great deal to slow the destructive force of sin in our world today. We can make the world a better place in these days when really our world is falling apart. It's the church that can make the difference. And number four, we have a personal priority, a personal priority. Now again, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Remember the days of the salt substitute? I forget what it was. I think it was the stuff they put in tires, calcium chloride. And I don't remember it, but they said if you didn't, couldn't eat sodium, you could have calcium chloride. Well, there's no substitute for us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's nothing that can take our place. But there is a possibility that as salt, we can become unsalty. Verse 13, the Lord Jesus says this, If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything and is trampled underfoot by men. So salt in the ancient world could become unsalty. Now, much of the salt in the ancient world came from the Dead Sea, this inland body of salt water, really dense salt content in this salt water of the Dead Sea. And so they would extract the salt from the Dead Sea, and the salt was not pure salt. Our salt today is refined salt. It will never become unsalty. But the salt of the ancient world was, was natural salt. It had sodium chloride and other things in it, and the sodium chloride could leach out. And so you could end up putting some salt on your food and you get this tasteless grit, and that's what you would have. And you have this unsalty salt. You can't go out and throw it on your garden. Back when we had a wood stove, in New England, our soil was always acid, and so you wanted things to raise the pH, and wood ashes would do that. So dump the ashes on the garden, that's what you would do. But one year we burned coal for heat. You can't take coal ashes and put them anywhere where something grows, because they'll kill everything. And so we had to figure out, what are we going to do with these clinkers every day? And it took a while to figure out what to do with the ashes coming out of the coal stove. And saltless salt is something that can't be put on the garden, can't act as a fertilizer. In fact, it'll kill what it touches. So what do you do? You just spread it on the road like gravel. And that's what they would do. It had no use at all. This is a sobering picture of the Christian who has become an unsalty Christian. 
And the unsalty Christian who has lost their saltiness doesn't become less useful, becomes completely useless, completely unuseful. Useful for nothing. There's no good purpose for an unsalty Christian, for a secret Christian, for someone who goes around and nobody knows that that person is a Christian. There's no use for that person. How does it happen? Well, Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world. And one of the ways is we respond to the pressure of the world. We let the world squeeze us into its mold to think the way the world thinks, to talk the way the world talks, to act the way the world acts. If a person can't distinguish between us and the world, we need to ask if I become an unsalty Christian. We need to think about that. Also, a timid and discouraged Christian can become unsalty. You know, it is true that there are different personalities among Christians. Some are very bold, very sure of themselves. Others, not so much. And the timid Christian has a unique hazard, and that is they can be really kind of broken by bad things that happen. And they can become an unsalty Christian, just kind of withdraw. Paul talked about this with Timothy. He said, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So Timothy had become discouraged by bad things that had happened through other people in his life. And he was kind of withdrawing. He was coming an unsalty Christian. And Paul said, you need to light that fire again. You need to start over. We see this in Laodicea. This was a church that had become lukewarm. I remember uh, some time ago, uh, it was suggested that I drink a quart of lukewarm water in the morning. Well, you ever try that? It's just like the verse says, you're neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out. And a couple of times I almost had to, but eventually you get used to it. Well, God said this about the church at Laodicea. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and I'm going to spit you out. You're kind of making me sick. And really they had to change back and change for the better. Why was this? The church at Laodicea said, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I don't need anything, and I don't need God. And sometimes a Christian gets to the place where they think, you know, I can get along on my own without God. And at that point, they become an unsalty Christian. Unusable is really what happens. Well, what can we do to preserve the saltiness in our lives? What can we do? Get back to basics. Reading and studying the Bible together in our ministries here, at home on our own. Also, praying and meditating on Scripture. You know, we have a lot of information coming at us all the time. You know, if you get in a car today, there's a screen with all the things you can listen to. Well, sometimes it's good to just meditate on Scripture and think about what we know from the Scriptures and ask God to apply it in our lives. Meditate and think about that and pray. And these are things that will keep the fire burning and keep the saltiness in our lives. So make it your goal to be a Christian who is salt and light, well ready to make a positive difference in a negative world. And then finally, number five, we have an ultimate goal. And we need to keep our eye on the goal of all of this. And our goal is that God would be glorified through our lives as salt and light. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And living as salt and light, doing those good works that God calls us to do, can have a positive effect on the unsafe person and really draw them to trust in Christ. Tertullian, a writer in the early church, was answering critics about the Christian faith, and he said, he said this, 
He said, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they, that is the Christians, love one another. For they themselves, the non-Christians, are animated by mutual hatred. See how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would rather be put to death. And so the unsaved people around these believers could see the difference. They said, you know, the unsaved people just hate each other, and they just start angry at each other all the time. But these Christians love one another and would die for one another. That's living as light in a dark world, and the world was seeing that and was influenced in a positive way toward trusting in Christ. So our ultimate goal as salt and light is not to call attention to ourselves, but our ultimate goal, again, is to glorify God. It says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, ultimately by trusting in Christ and being saved. That's our ultimate goal in all of this, to live as salt and light, to make the world a better place, that people might be drawn to Christ and believe in him for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it tells us the way things really are and answers the question, why are we here as Christians? How do we live in this world? Help us to understand we live in a fallen world, that we are here as salt and light, as salt to slow the progress of sin, and as light to bring the light of the gospel to those who need to hear and to serve together, doing good works that might help to draw people to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.